2 Samuel 12, 1 through 25. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites." Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. 
Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sandy. Let me just say again, thanks to all of you for being here today. It's, uh, you know, all of us have watched the service on the screen for the, this past year, but there's something about being together uh, for the worship of the Lord and uh, on a day when you could have found 101 reasons not to be here. I'm glad you're here. Not just so I'm talk- not talking to an empty sanctuary, but it's uh, great to worship together. Let me pray that God will help us as we think about this passage, and then we'll look at it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, uh, for every part of it, and uh, for this passage today that you have ordained and called for our attention. We pray, Lord, that we will understand why as we go through it in our lives individually, corporately. We pray that wherever each of us is at in our journey of faith, that you will indeed encourage us, correct us, direct us by your spirit. So speak to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, 2009 film Everybody's Fine uh, wasn't exactly a blockbuster, but in it Robert De Niro plays an aging, lonely, and unwell recent widower uh, called Frank. And in the opening scene of the film, we see Frank at the supermarket stocking up on groceries and on wine and new barbecue as he anticipates a weekend visit by his four adult children who live in various parts of the country. When people ask Frank how his children are doing, he always answers, oh, everyone's fine. Well, a couple of days before the fine family is scheduled to arrive, Frank starts getting voicemails with disappointing news that each of his sons and daughters uh, is not going to be able to come. The reasons sound plausible, but at the same time, something smells fishy. You get the sense uh, that no one in the family really wants to come home. Frank, however, doesn't pick up on the subtext to the messages, and so he comes up with what he thinks is a a brilliant idea. If no one can visit him, he will make surprise visits to all of them. And what Frank learns during each of those visits is this, that everyone in Frank's family isn't fine at all. There are lots of family secrets, and until they're surfaced and owned, this is a family in serious trouble. Now, every family, of course, has its secrets. Every community, every country, every person has their secrets too. And for some, it could be an addictive behavior. For some, an abusive or traumatic past experience. For others, it could be the fear of being rejected, an uncontrollable temper that's only exposed in the house, an infidelity of some source, 
prejudice against certain people, the list could go on. But whatever they are, the secrets, with our secrets, we hide. We hide from others, we hide from ourselves, and ultimately, we hide from God. And the result of all that hiding is that we cut ourselves off from the one who is the source of light and life. We become strangers to ourselves, and we become alienated from others, and that leads to disfigured lives, it leads to disoriented loves, leads to a form of death. And here in 2 Samuel 12, David has a secret. We heard the details of that secret last week as Jeremy laid out for us the story of chapter 11, a story of lust, a story of adultery, a story of murder. David seemingly had no intention of bringing his secrets to the light of day, but God has other plans. Through his prophet Nathan, God would bring David's secrets to the light of day so that David could actually walk into the light of God's grace. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. I've borrowed it from the quote of Charles Spurgeon that's in your bulletin today. It's that pardoned sin makes an honest heart. We're going to look at the passage in three parts this morning. Uh, The prophet's story. Secondly, the king's confession. Thirdly, the substitute son. Also that we might understand better that pardoned sin makes an honest heart. So first of all, the prophet's story. At the end of chapter 11, as we saw last week, David seems to have deluded himself and, and done his best to delude others into thinking that he's done nothing wrong. Indeed, you can imagine in the weeks and months that followed his adultery with Bathsheba, his orders to have Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed in battle, that David just sought to create an appearance of business as usual so that everything outwardly would have appeared normal. He marries Bathsheba, they're expecting a child, David's going to his meetings, he's giving speeches, he's delivering judgments, he's keeping as busy as a king could keep. And all of that, however, was most likely an effort on his part to put out of his mind what surely he knew was the case, and what the narrator tells us in the very last line of chapter 11, 1127, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Or more literally, what David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, while the narrator here doesn't tell us what David was thinking and feeling at this time, David himself does. He does so in Psalm 32, where he reflects in hindsight on this period in his life. Here's what he says in verses 2 to 4 of that psalm. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. With the benefit of hindsight, David would be able to look back later on this period and understand that his silence about his sin, his keeping of secrets, had created this disintegration in his life, this utter dissipation of strength and energy in his body. That David's unconfessed sin was wreaking havoc in his body, in his mind, in his life. But at the same time, he was essentially comatose to its causes, blinded by his own hypocrisy, and unable to bring himself to acknowledge what he had done. All of which made him senseless to the abundance of God's grace that was actually on offer to him. Let's pick up the story then in the first part of chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. 
Now we know that at this point, quite a bit of time has passed, almost a year, perhaps even a little more, because the son conceived in adultery has now been born before Nathan comes to David. But at what the Lord must have decided was exactly the right time, he sends Nathan to David. If you were here last week or you read back through chapter 11, you'll see there's a lot of sending that goes on in that previous chapter because David was repeatedly sending messengers, arranging for the satisfaction of his lust, the murder of Bathsheba's husband through the agency of others. But now we come to the most significant sending of all, a sending that will change everything. You may recall that we met Nathan uh, the prophet back in chapter 7, Back there, he was something of a yes man to David with regard to the idea of building the temple. But here, in contrast, Nathan confronts David. And that's a brave thing for Nathan to do, given that the king has already demonstrated a willingness to murder in order to keep his guilt hidden. Nathan is willing to be bold, but wisely, as we're about to say, see, he's also very shrewd. Nathan tells David, a story. Look at the story again in verses 1 to 4. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It, it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Nathan's story is a brilliantly crafted tale, not just of greed and theft, but of exploitation and oppression. Here was a rich man whose riches were in stark contrast to the, the poor man's nothing, his, his flocks and herds in contrast with the, the one little ewe lamb, his, his natural increase in the flock in contrast to the need for the poor man to buy his one treasured possession. But then embedded also within the story are these clear allusions to David's story. Nathan tells David that the lamb was like a daughter to the poor man. The Hebrew word for daughter being bat, the first syllable of Bathsheba. This ewe lamb would eat and drink and lie in his arms. The same three activities that David had tried to get Uriah to engage in with his wife. And while the poor man gave of his food and drink and affection, the rich man was not a giver, he was a taker. So when he needed a lamb to feed a visitor, he took the poor man's pet lamb rather than slaughter one of his own. And all these parallels were apparently working at some subconscious level for David. The conscious level, he can't see the story's significance to him. However, the ferocity of his response perhaps indicates that indeed he does recognize the implication. Look at verses five to six. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David's enraged. He vows that the rich man would die for this injustice. 
And that's when Nathan brings the truth down like a thunderstroke in probably the most direct application of a sermon to a person in the history of the world. Nathan says to David, you are the man. Now let's just hit the pause button for a moment here at what is one of the greatest lines in one of the great moments in the Bible. And consider with me the shrewdness of Nathan's approach here in two ways and the lessons that we might learn from that. First of all, notice that Nathan concludes his confrontation with the you are the man statement rather than coming in with all guns blazing and starting with it. That's to say, Nathan could have come to David and said, O king, the Bible says you shall not commit adultery and you have. The Bible says you shall not murder and you have. The Bible says you shall not bear false witness and you have. If you've ever tried that approach, and most of us have at some point, you'll know that more often than not, such a full-on assault just leads to defensiveness and excuse-making and self-justification. And sometimes, perhaps out of shame or embarrassment, the person may admit their wrongdoing and promise, oh, I'll never do that again. But if the commitment's only at the level of the will and not at the level of a transformed heart, then such words are essentially just window dressing. But Nathan doesn't take that approach. His goal with, with David is not condemnation, it's conversion, it's, it's conviction, not humiliation. But because sin always spins out a delusional field around us such that we, we can't see it, Nathan knows there's a better and a wiser way to confront David's sin than head on. And so in addition to finishing with the punchline rather than beginning with it, David also shrewdly uses a story. So I think I've mentioned before, I've always gravitated more to nonfiction books rather than fiction. All of us probably lean to one type or the other. But over the last couple of years, uh, with the help of some friends, I've been endeavoring to read more fiction. And one benefit of reading fiction is that it opens your eyes to truth and beauty and reality in what we might say is a less directive manner, or what the 19th century poet Emily Dickinson refers to in her famous poem, A Slant. Here's her poem, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies too bright for our infirm delight. The truth's superb surprise is lightning to the children eased with explanation kind. The truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. Nathan tells David the truth, but he tells it slant. And in a sense, that's what all great storytelling, all great literature does. The story takes David out of himself and, and gives him an emotional attachment to what is good and what is right. Nathan doesn't tell David here anything that he didn't already know. David knows that it's wrong to kill a man, to to take his wife, but he had built for himself this little world of self-justification and self-protection and self-indulgence that made it impossible for him to see the moral facts of the matter. And that's the delusional subtlety of sin. It doesn't feel like sin when we're doing it. It can actually feel fulfilling and satisfying, even godlike, a rerun of the episode in the Garden of Eden when the serpent says, you shall not die, you shall be like gods. David didn't feel like a sinner when he sent for Bathsheba. He felt like a lover. He didn't feel like a sinner when he sent for Uriah. He felt 
like a king. And what could be wrong with being a lover and a king? But Nathan's story takes him out of that world and lets him see what it looks like from the outside. Because Nathan knows it's not enough just to know what's right. To actually change, we have to desire what's right before we'll act upon that consistently. And stories can help us do that. They have this unique ability to to shape our sympathies, to redirect our desires. And that's what happens with David here. That David is so drawn into the story that he ends up being undone and condemned by his own words. So as St. Augustine puts it, to cut away diseased tissue in David's heart and heal the wound there, Nathan used David's tongue as a knife. To which Nathan could reply, you are the man. That brings us, secondly, to the king's confession, verses 7 to first part of 9. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Nathan now makes explicit what was implicit in the story, that just like the rich man, David had everything he could ever need. God had provided him everything. Indeed, he says, if it hadn't been enough, David, I would have given you more. So why, Nathan says, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Here Nathan's getting to the very root of the issue. And just in case David didn't get it, Nathan will reiterate the main issue. Verse 10, he says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Verse 14, By this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. So by David's adultery and murder, David had despised God's word, not just, in fact, or only his commandments, but perhaps even more, his promises issued back in chapter 7 through Nathan. He had treated those promises as if they were worth nothing, as if they didn't matter. But Nathan says to despise those promises, to despise God's word, is to despise the Lord himself. It's to scorn the Lord. That's what's at the root of the seriousness of David's sin here. When David hears Nathan's story. He hears the charges made against him in verse 13 he responds, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. It's a brief statement. I have sinned against the Lord. In fact, in the original Hebrew, it's, it's even briefer. It's just two words, but it's honest and it's sincere. There's no holding back. There's no denials. There's no making excuses. Two words and the floodgates of God's mercy just open wide. Listen again to David in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Instead of David covering up his sin now, he knew that God had covered his sin. Instead of hiding from God, now he knows God is his hiding place. And that's the promise to each one of us. 
not fundamentally because of the level of sincerity of our confession or the depth of our repentance, but because of the sheer grace and undeserved mercy of God to sinners like us. But it's not only in Psalm 32 that we see David expand on what goes on in this scene. It's in Psalm 51 as well. In fact, it's in Psalm 51 that we see that that David got what Nathan was saying about the root of his sins. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 51 verses 3 to 4. He says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I imagine some of you have read those words perhaps many times and perhaps said to yourself, really? Against God and only God did you sin, David? I mean, come on. But you see, David isn't denying here the evil he committed against Bathsheba and against Uriah. Rather, he's he's going here to the root. He's identifying the sin beneath the sin. Bathsheba, of course, had been greatly wronged. She'd been exploited, she'd been demeaned, and Uriah had been shamefully treated, deceived, and then killed. Nathan would lay out with David in this passage the the moral consequences from those wrongs. There would be pain and suffering. There would be death and lamentation that would follow hard upon David for the rest of his life. But before those wrongs, before those sins, came sin with a capital S, Sin against God by putting himself at the center, by displacing God. But as Martin Luther has put it, we never break commandments 3 through 10 of the Ten Commandments until we've first broken commandments 1 and 2. First two commandments are about the true worship of God, about idolatry, and idolatry is always the reason we ever do anything wrong. And David understands that. David was admitting that before he had committed physical adultery, he had committed spiritual adultery. That the main reason he had run into the arms of Bathsheba was because he had ignored and spurned the arms and the beauty of God. David, in this passage, in those Psalms, really provides a model of genuine repentance for all of us. Because genuine repentance begins when we're able to discern those words being addressed to us. You are the man. You are the woman. The gospel's never fundamentally about someone else. That's how David was listening to Nathan's story, listening to this prophet preach a sermon about someone else and getting all worked up about this someone else's sin and this someone else's plight. David was consumed with this religion of moral judgmentalism, of self-righteous finger-pointing, but the gospel's always about you and about me. If your reaction after hearing a sermon at times can be, you know, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this, you've lost your focus because God says, you know, believe it or not, I can take care of that person's issues and I will. You can leave it with me. But the reason I have you here today is because I want you to hear this. And if we've got ears to hear, more often than not, then we'll be like the person who comes up to the preacher after the service and says, were you following me this week? Now, why does the person say that? It's not because the preacher's a stalker. It's because God has taken the truths proclaimed that day and by the power of the Holy Spirit has applied them to that person's heart and mind such that the person has heard God say to them, you are the man, you are the woman. 
Gospel is never a truth in general. It's a truth in specific addressed to you, addressed to me about who we are, about what we have done, and then gloriously about what God has done for us. And with this confession, David demonstrates he's seen that. Having been addressed personally, he answers personally, I have sinned against the Lord. That brings us lastly and thirdly to the substitute son. So David's sin has been forgiven by God, but it's still not without its consequences. And in verses 10 to 14, Nathan lays out the consequences. In verse 11, God announces that he will raise up evil against David out of David's own house. But because he had used the sword of the Ammonites to strike down Uriah, the sword would not depart from David's house. In fact, as David had exclaimed in response to Nathan's story that the rich man should make fourfold restitution for his deed, as we continue on in 2 Samuel, we'll see that David will indeed pay fourfold for the death of Uriah and the death of four of his sons. And the first of those sons he would lose would be this child born to Bathsheba. So most sober reminder that God's forgiveness of our sin does not remove its consequences in our lives. That every one of us who is a Christian can look back on instances of sinful behavior in our lives, outbursts of prejudice, anger, sexual infidelity, acts of betrayal, failure to forgive, expressions of greed, and we know We're assured that God's grace and forgiveness covers all those sins, and yet we also know that the consequences of those sins extended well past the actual deed and indeed may still be extending into the very present. So it's a reminder that while we should never doubt God's willingness and desire to forgive even the greatest sins, we should never test God by indulging in sin assuming nonchalantly that we'll just simply repent later. Never use the pretext of forgiveness to rationalize your sin, because the truth is, the sin is never worth it. It's really the death of this son that consumes the second half of the passage Sandy read for us, because, but because David has rediscovered God to be the God of grace, he figures he'll seek the Lord for seven days, prostrate on the ground and fasting, petitioning God to spare the child. David understood, as we saw a few weeks ago, that God's grace is his natural work. And while his wrath and judgment are, as the Puritans put it, God's strange work. But in this case, God had decreed his strange work. And so on the seventh day, the child dies. David confuses his servants because he seems to have got things backwards prior to the child's death. David was in mourning, but now he gets the news that the child has died. He rises up, he washes himself, anoints himself, changes his clothes, goes to the house of the Lord to worship, after which he goes back to his own home to eat a meal. And when the servants ask for an explanation for this, here's David's response, verses 22 to 23. While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. 
David actually here not only gives us an Old Testament insight into the hope of life after death, but I think he also gives words of comfort. For any who have suffered a miscarriage or lost an infant or young child in any way and wondered if God has provided any promises about what has happened to such a child. And the promise here would appear to be that if your beloved child, that your beloved child is indeed in the presence of God, and when the, when the believer dies, she or he will join that child in the same presence of God, both awaiting Jesus' ushering in of the new creation when all, when all will receive their resurrection bodies. It's a wonderful assurance. But let me conclude with this. Eugene Peterson, in his book on 2 Samuel, from which the earlier quote came from, makes the observation that there is a remarkable resonance to this story of David standing before Nathan, to that of Jesus standing before Pilate. Pilate says of Jesus, John 19, verse 5, Behold the man, echoing what Nathan said of David, You are the man. And the two sentences, Peterson says, are alike in that they focus in on the person who's at the center of the action in the respective stories, but he writes, the sentences are also unlike in this way. This is what Peterson writes. Nathan's sentence brings David, and therefore us, to the brink of God. David realizes who he is, not in himself, but before God. It's God with whom he has to do. Pilate's sentence, in contrast, brings Jesus to the brink of who we are, revealing that it's me, you, with whom God has to do. This personal God is facing and taking care of my personal sin, making me right with God. And here in David's story, there is this glimpse of how God would do this, how God would take care of our sin, how he would make us right with God. God says to David, you will not die, but this son of yours will die. David pleads with God to spare his son. You have to figure that David knew that the sparing of his son could possibly mean that he would lose his own life, but God refuses. He essentially says, no, this son is the one who will die for your sin. And we might struggle with this part of the story. I mean, why should David's son be the one who pays the penalty of death for David's sin? But then again, we might ask a similar question regarding our own sin. Why should God's son be the one who pays the penalty of death for our sin? God's answer to that question is because it was the only way he could make us right with him. The only way we could be forgiven our sin, granted eternal life, given freedom from our secrets. God says to us, behold this man, behold my son. He is the one who has died for your sin. And once you and I grasp that good news, we, like David, are able to rise from mourning to worship the Lord and to feast because of the substitute son for us. Pardoned sin does make an honest heart. It makes a joyful heart. I wonder if you know that the joy of, of pardoned sin in your own life, does it still, in the words of Dale Ralph Davis, does it still produce goosebumps on your soul or has it become matter of fact to you? you know, it's said on the night before his execution, Archibald Campbell, the 17th century Marquess of Argyll in Scotland, 
claimed that he heard God saying to him, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins are forgiven thee. And Campbell, upon repeating those words to himself, burst into tears and retired to a window to weep with joy. Pardoned sin does make an honest heart and a joyful heart, and it rescues us from the darkness and tyranny of our secrets. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your invitation to us to bring all our failings, all our sins to you, knowing that your grace is abundant, that the floodgates of mercy are poured out upon us as we come and bring our sins to you, knowing that Jesus has taken care of them all, that he has dealt with the penalty, the punishment for our sin. May, indeed, the reminder of ourselves of all that you have done for us, that you have pardoned our sin, indeed produce goosebumps on our soul. May we never tire of reminding ourselves of that mercy, that goodness, that grace poured out by you upon us. And may that free us from our secrets, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.